I think it's important for all of us to tell the story how communities have been transformed without fighting, without a bomb, a missile, a gun. Hey everyone, and welcome to a special edition of No Fat Cats. We're going to take a break from our normal programming and honor someone who has very much embodied so many of the values that our country needs today, Representative John Lewis. I had the privilege of filming the video and audio of an interview with him back on May 6, 2014, as a part of a team from the U.S. Institute of Peace. And it just felt it was appropriate to replay the audio in its entirety from that conversation, uh, so that way it's out there for, for everyone to, to listen to and pull tips away from it and just glean from his legacy. Representative John Lewis is just known as one of the big six leaders of the civil rights movement. He was arrested and beaten over 40 times, but just stayed true to his principles of nonviolence. And to quote from the website johnlewis.house.gov, he is, to quote, one of the most courageous persons the civil rights movement has ever produced. John Lewis has dedicated his life to protecting human rights, securing civil liberties, and building what he calls the beloved community in America. His dedication to the highest ethical standards and moral principles has won him the admiration of many of his colleagues on both sides of the aisle in the United States Congress. Here's the interview that George Lopez conducted with Congressman John Lewis. You will hear his voice off the main mic. Here is the interview with Congressman John Lewis. Congressman, thank you for being with us. But thank you very much for having me, sir. I'd like to start with uh, the question, how and why did you get involved in the nonviolent struggle for civil rights? I grew up in Alabama, 50 miles from Montgomery. Growing up there, I saw the signs that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting. And I didn't like it. I would ask my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents why. And they would say, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way, don't get in trouble. In 1955, 15 years old, in the 10th grade, I heard of Rosa Parks. I heard the words of Martin Luther King Jr. on our radio. The action of Rosa Parks, the words and leadership of Martin Luther King Jr. inspired me. I was so inspired by Dr. King and what he was doing in Montgomery that in 1956, at the age of 16, with some of my brothers and sisters and cousins, we went down to the public library in the little town of Troy, Alabama, trying to get library cards, trying to check out some books. And we were told by the librarian that the library was for whites only, not for colors. When I finished high school in May of 1957, I wanted to attend a little college called Troy State College. It is now known as Troy University. Submitted my application, my high school transcript. I never heard a word from the school. So I wrote a letter to Martin Luther King Jr. I didn't tell my mother, my father, any of my sisters or brothers, any of my teachers. I told Dr. King I needed his help. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote me back and sent me a round trip Greyhound bus ticket and invited me to come to Montgomery to meet with him. I remember later, after I'd gone off to school to Tennessee, Dr. King heard that I was there. He got back in touch and suggested when I was home for spring break to come and see him. So I met him in March of 1958. By this time, I'm 18 years old. 
And Martin Luther King Jr. inspired me. He inspired me. He, um, he became my hero. But the young man by the name of Jim Lawson, a great advocate of the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence, started conducting these nonviolent workshops. So every Tuesday night at 6.30 p.m., a group of college students from Fish University, Tennessee State, American Baptist College, Vanderbilt University, Meharry Medical School, would go and study. We studied what Gandhi attempted to do, what he attempted to accomplish in South Africa. We studied what he accomplished in India. We studied Thoreau and civil disobedience. We studied the great religions of the world. We studied what Dr. King was all about in Montgomery. And were you trained in tactics too? In the movement, preparing for what later became the city, we, we were trained in tactics, mm -hmm. techniques. Um, but in the process, we grew to accept the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence as a way of life, as a way of living. But we had make-believe sit-ins, stand-ins at the theater, sit-in at lunch counters and restaurants. And there were what we call role-playing, a social drama, pretending that someone is beating you, or pouring hot water, or hot coffee on you, or spitting on you. And could you take it? Could you restrain yourself from striking back? And the group of us, during the fall of 1959 and the spring of 1960, many of us accepted the way of nonviolence as a way of life, as a way of living. And I remember so well on one occasion during the city movement when we were told that if we went down on this particular day, there was a possibility that police officials would stand by and let people attack us, beat us, and we probably would be arrested. But we were prepared exactly what happened. On that day, we were sitting in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion. Some reading the book, some looking straight ahead, some writing a paper, no one saying a word. We were attacked, we were beaten, and the police officials came in and arrested 89 of us. It was my first arrest. And on that day, when I was arrested, I felt free. I felt liberated. I felt like I had crossed over. But the sit-in movement, not just in Nashville, but all across the South, appealed to the conscience of people all over America. It's a matter of time, long before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, those signs that said white and colored came tumbling down. And in many places in the heart of the Deep South, these places became desegregated. And you saw white people and black people sitting, eating together, going to the theater together, and sitting on the same floor. Has this changed this experience and your longtime service? Change your view of what is power? 
about where power comes from and how it's used? This movement, my participation in the movement, and observing what happened in the American South, it had a profound impact on my attitude about power. You can have something called moral power, the power of persuasion. You don't have to use a gun, a missile, a bomb. You don't have to talk or speak mean. Words can be very dangerous. Words can be powerful. But you can use words that are in keeping with the philosophy of nonviolence. It's, it's not just words, but the way you look at someone. The movement taught me to try to live a life of peace, a life of love, to respect the dignity and the worth of every human being. It's in keeping with the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence to respect the dignity and the worth of every human being. That we all are human. We're a member of the human family. And in a real sense, we have a spark of the divine in each one of us. We don't have a right to destroy it or abuse it. There's so much violence in the world now, and the history books are replete with war and recountings of civil war. How do you think we can get more of the nonviolent story, the reality of social change through, through this mechanism, through to the news media, the historians, and the, and the classrooms in our country? I think it's important for all of us to tell the story, how communities have been transformed without fighting, without a bomb, a missile, a gun. That idea of creating what Dr. King and others call the beloved community. It's possible. And be willing to forgive. It's not anything wrong with saying, I'm sorry, I apologize, will you forgive me? Intercept it and move toward that sense of community, toward reconciliation. I remember just a few short years ago, one of the men that attacked us in one of the southern towns beat us and left us lying in a pool of blood came to my office on Capitol Hill many years later with his son. His son had been encouraging his father to seek out the people that they wronged. He came in and said, Mr. Lewis, I'm one of the people that beat you and left you bloody on May 9th, 1961. Will you forgive me? He said, will you please forgive me? I want to apologize. And I said, I accept your apology. I forgive you. His son started crying, he started crying, I started crying. They hugged me and I hugged them back. That is the power. That is the power of the spirit of nonviolence. That is the power of love. 
I'll give you another example. In May of 1961, during the Freedom Rides in Montgomery, Alabama, when we arrived at the Greyhound bus station, the police department was not around. They just disappeared. President Kennedy, his brother Robert Kennedy had worked out an arrangement that we would be able to travel by Greyhound bus from Birmingham to Montgomery and there would be a private plane flying over the bus and every 15 miles there would be a state trooper car. The plane disappeared, the state trooper car disappeared, but the local police and state officials in Montgomery had assured the president and the attorney general that we would be protected when we arrived in Montgomery. We got off the bus when we arrived in Montgomery. There was no police present. There was not any police officers there, not any state troopers there. And an angry mob came up and started beating members of the press. If you had a pencil and a pad, you had a camera, you were beaten and left bloody. And then they turned on 21 of us, the Freedom Riders, and beat us. Many of us were seriously hurt. But a few years later, more than 50 years later, the new chief of the police department in Montgomery, Alabama, came to the same place where I first met Dr. King in Montgomery to greet a group of us, including members of Congress. And he said, Congressman, when you came here years ago, our police department was not a good police department. There a lot of mob to beat you. He said, but today we have a, a different police department, a better police department. He went on to say, before anyone can become a member of this police department, they must know something about the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. They must know something about Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. They must know something about what happened in Montgomery, what happened in Birmingham, what happened in Selma. And he continued to talk. He said, I want to show and demonstrate how much I appreciate for what you did. Now this young officer was not even born in 1961. He said, I'm gonna take off my badge. I'm gonna give you my badge. And I said, Chief, you can't do that. You're the chief of police. You need your badge. He said, Congressman, I can get another one. And he gave me his badge. And there was members of Congress, community people, citizens from all over America, Capitol Police, there from Capitol Hill, we all started crying. And there's moments of reconciliation. We can't lay down the burden and change things with our bullets, with our guns, with our bombs. The, the new Jim Lawson, the new teachers should study what the old Jim Lawson did. You know, it, it may be seen to be old, but there's different ways of teaching it. Mm -hmm. um, 
every so often you need um, to review the tapes. Read the literature. If another generation was able to move in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion and literally transform neighborhoods, transform communities and towns, cities, we can do it now. And we didn't have social media. And today it should be easier to reach people, to teach people. And, and, and talk about what Dr. King spoke about. He said on one occasion, we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters. If not, we will perish as fools. Gandhi put it another way. It is nonviolence or non-existence. In the final analysis, the new Jim Lawson, the new Martin Luther King Jr., the new Gandhi is saying, we're one people, we're one family, we're one house. We all live in the same house, not just the American house, but the world house. And we must learn to live together. So do you feel optimistic when you see the movements in Egypt and elsewhere being temporarily crushed, that civil resistance, that nonviolence? there's still hope for them? Oh, in spite of all of the setbacks, interruption, I'm still hopeful. I'm still optimistic that the way of peace, the way of nonviolence is a better way. It's a more excellent way. We all can participate, all of us, the young, the middle-aged, the older citizens of the world can participate in a nonviolent campaign, not just to save a nation, a community, but to save a people. Congressman, this has just been wonderful for us. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great, great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. And that wraps up a special edition of this podcast, honoring Congressman John Lewis. I know whenever I had the chance to meet, interact with somebody uh, who is well-regarded in many ways, and then I hear about their passing, it always hits me at a different level than people who I've simply never met before. And I just felt like I wanted to, in some way, honor his legacy and uh, all the work that he has done in, in our country. And I want to thank the people who were on this trip who made it possible, being Ann Hingley, uh, Lori Schultz-Heim, George Lopez, interviewer, and then Darren Cambridge, Dominic Carley, and also photographer Bill Fitzpatrick. We'll be returning to our normal programming next week. Uh, this week, I'm actually out on vacation uh, with uh, family out in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, I had Eric Fisher's podcast scheduled up for this week, but when I saw that John Lewis had passed away, I just felt it appropriate to pivot and honor his legacy. I didn't even have my mic equipment with me, but I decided, you know, I can make do with my cell phone and still communicate what I need to. Uh, it's not so much about the gear you have, but just what you're actually trying to say and communicate. But I'm planning on recharging this week and coming back even more ready to go. I think this year, especially more than ever, we all need to find ways of taking breaks, recharging, as I know this 2020 has really been uh, been a year of a doozy in some ways, so to speak. And you need to recharge as much as you can. So remember, just subscribe if you haven't already to this podcast. If you're listening to it and you found it, normally this podcast is 
geared towards creatives who want to continually get better and always improving. I just love helping people set their goals, create plans, and execute consistently. And I would love to have you normally on the show, even if you just found this interview through John Lewis's name coming up. But until next week, have a great one.